0: Thanks for supporting companies that support this podcast. Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. Thanks for joining me today. My name is Judy Cho and I'm board certified in holistic nutrition and I have a private practice where we focus on root cause healing. Today, I had the pleasure of sitting down with Dr. Allison Seebecker. If you have not heard of her, it's probably because you've never suffered from SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Dr. Seebecker has done so much research and work around SIBO and how to treat it. And all her information is really just out there as an educational resource. I have used Her research and her content to really build out my SIBO protocol for my carnivore patients and clients. Dr. Seebecker has her own SIBO story, which you'll hear in this interview, but she has worked in the nutritional field since 1988 and is a 2005 graduate of the National University of Natural Medicine. She has earned her doctorate in naturopathic medicine and her master's in oriental medicine. She is a co-founder and a formal medical director of the SIBO Center for Digestive Health at NUNM Clinic and has specialized in the treatment of SIBO since 2010. I will link to Dr. C. Becker's website where there's so much information about SIBO, gut health, how to treat it. And whether you're a patient or a practitioner, all of the, I guess, most up-to-date information about SIBO and healing SIBO and the nuances of it, And a lot of what we discuss in this conversation is shared, and you may want to look at her website, especially if you're suffering from SIBO or if you think you are suffering from SIBO. This conversation is so powerful because we also touch upon how mold illness or SIRS can affect your SIBO or your gut imbalances. Let's get right into the interview. Hi, Dr. Seebecker. I am such a huge fan of yours. A lot of times I will uh, refer back to your old Townsend article where you wrote about new treatment for SIBO. And literally you will share studies with use of antibiotics versus the herbals, how it just takes a little bit longer with the herbals, but you, you touch diet and you touch treatment and protocols and it's so thorough and I love it. And I'll link it to this interview, but I've been such a huge fan for that. And Whenever I have a client or patient that comes in that has SIBO, maybe they did the breath test, I always refer to your work. So I am so excited to have you on. If you could share a little bit about yourself.
1: Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) I'm so glad to be here. Isn't it great to know something I wrote a long time ago is still helping people? Yes, totally. (laughs) I'm so glad. Yeah, I'm a naturopathic physician and also an acupuncturist. And I, um uh, I practiced, you know, general medicine, uh, for a while. And then I just found myself being drawn to specialize in SIBO back then it was brand new, uh, to most of us. This was, oh, I don't know, like 2010 or something like that. And I just got real fired up about it because it, because it was a real missing piece of information for most practitioners and patients. So I uh, decided to focus on education, basically, and awareness raising. And I've been doing that ever since. And I also um, treated, I created a SIBO specialty clinic at the university where I teach. And so I treated um, SIBO for many, many years exclusively that the only patients I saw were suspected SIBO or had SIBO. And so that gave me a lot of experience in treating it and, and how to help people with it. And so that, that's, that's a quick rundown. No, that's amazing. Um, I know that you have even
0: practitioner lectures and we'll touch upon that in a second. But so what is SIBO? I mean, I know we keep using the acronym, but if you can just go down to the basics of what is small, t- small intestine bacteria overgrowth.
1: Well, you said it and it's, it really is what it sounds like. It's when there's uh, bacteria that are overgrown in the small intestine, too many there. Normally that is a organ that does not have a lot of bacteria because that's where we do our Breakdown and absorption of food, digestion and absorption of food, and um, and so normally there's not a lot of bacteria there because if there were they would really be interfering with that process, which is what winds up happening with SIBO. We have a lot of bacteria in the large intestine, and most people know that. That's the microbiome. I mean, there's microbiomes in all parts of our body, uh, but that's when most people talk about the microbiome, they mean the large intestine. So it's great that we have a lot of bacteria there. Not so great if we have a lot of bacteria in the small intestine. So, and just ever so briefly, the reason that that would happen is usually there's all sorts of, um, other diseases and circumstances and medicines that could lead someone to get SIBO. But the basic premise is when the normal uh, downward movement or motility of that area slows down for any reason, sometimes there's an obstruction or or just the movement slows down in that area, bacteria can accumulate. And one little thing I'll just add on there is that uh, it's most common we haven't gotten to the symptoms yet but yes. it's most common for um actually for people to have diarrhea mm-hmm. and so i just wanted to mention this because people think well i don't have slow motility if they have diarrhea right but the different organs can have different movement patterns so there can be a sluggish movement in the small intestine allowing bacteria to accumulate which isn't good and that can actually lead to diarrhea which is affecting the large intestine
0: and then there's different types of sibo so there's like sibo methane sibo hydrogen and then now there's i think even sifo does it really matter the differentiation?
1: Yes, it matters for um, it matters for symptoms, and really, what really matters is for treatment. That's where it really matters. So, yeah, there's basically three gases that we you know have the overarching term of SIBO: uh, hydrogen, methane, and hydrogen sulfide. And a couple years ago, um, the terminology changed a little bit for methane the methane type of SIBO and got a new name. And now that's called EMO, intestinal methanogen overgrowth. It's still catching on that name. (laughs) Um, It was just really mostly a a linguistic uh, problem because um, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, we have the word bacterial there. And it turns out that the microorganisms that are overgrown that produce methane aren't technically bacteria. They're archaea. It's, It's like a scientific difference. So it didn't quite technically fit under that category. But anyway, these coexist all the time, the different types of gases. So someone can have all three gases. They could have very commonly hydrogen and methane. And that just reflects the bacteria or archaea. I usually just say bacteria to mean the archaea, which are overgrown. And then our treatment. So where it really matters is our treatment because different bacteria and different archaea respond differently to, to different treatments. It's kind of like, you know, if you, if you have, you know, a a flu or, you know, I don't know if you have strep throat versus a sinus infection, just from the perspective of pharmaceutical antibiotics, you would need different medicines. It's the same thing, but the different bacteria respond to different things. So it really, really does matter. Okay. And then why is it that
0: certain people get SIBO and other people don't seem to get SIBO, even though their diet isn't that great.
1: Right. <laughs> diet, this is one of the interesting things. Diet, uh, changes in diet doesn't cause SIBO. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it there's no way I can figure that it can cause SIBO. You really need a disease process coming in um, or something pretty intense coming in to slow the migrating motor complex. That's that movement of the small intestine. Or create a physical obstruction. There are some anatomical um, alterations that can also lead to SIBO, but um, diet doesn't usually lead to those. And but then the thing is, and and this is this is very frustrating, right? Because then once you have SIBO, then diet plays a massive role, massive role. Because probably one of the the biggest overarching symptoms is that there are food intolerances, there are food sensitivities to the entire generally, category of carbohydrates, which is, you know, plant foods and, you know, fruits, vegetables, sweets, grains, you know, milk, because that has lactose and all these things like that. And so then people with SIBO start changing their diet to help with the symptoms. But I'm sure we all know people, which is very frustrating, who, you know, have terrible diets and don't have terrible digestion. You know, it's kind of crazy, or at least they don't have SIBO. So yeah, so diet doesn't lead to it. But then once we've got SIBO, it sure is a major player. So then
0: what are some of the causes? I know that there are there's a relationship with H. pylori infections in the stomach that people tend to then possibly get SIBO.
1: Okay. So, the, I mean, it can happen, but that one is not so clear. I'll tell you the ones that are, we really okay, okay. know, super well-researched that it's absolutely for sure. The number one is food poisoning. Okay. And so also called traveler's diarrhea or stomach mm-hmm. flu. And specifically, there's a lot of types of food poisoning, but specifically it's bacterial food poisoning. You you often don't know when what kind it is when you get it. Um, it's only about 10% of people who get food poisoning that, that, that that's bacterial and that'll go on to cause SIBO. It does it through an autoimmune process. But the thing of it is is that food poisoning is so common. So common. It happens like all the time to millions of people every day that 10% winds up being a lot. And it's studies have shown that that 10% of food poisoning can account for almost all of IBS, in fact. So um, that's something we didn't mention, but the big, that's the big news of the last, you know, 15 years is that IBS, which is a mysterious disease, um, irritable bowel syndrome, it's been identified that about 70% uh, 60, 60 to 80 percent, so we say 70 percent of people with IBS, it's actually SIBO and it's caused okay. by SIBO. And the majority of those are caused by food poisoning. And it's an autoimmune process, which I can describe in detail if you want. But the other causes, so that's like probably the most common, the most number one. I mentioned some anatomical uh, circumstances. So adhesions, which are basically scar bands um, that can form inside the abdomen and intestine, that's probably the the second most common cause, or at least it's up there. It's up there. These form very commonly. They form from um, any kind of blow to the abdomen. So it could be like a sporting accident, um, a fall from a bike, you know what I mean? A car accident, anything like this. They also can form from infection. There's any kind of infection or inflammation that is going on because they're kind of like a band-aid. And when they form, if they happen to form in a way that causes a kink or an obstruction in the small intestine. They have a a strong pulling force and they can alter the shape of the small intestine and basically like narrow the the lumen Mm -hmm. so that not much can get through. And in a situation like that, there's a backup up here and this is where the SIBO would occur. And then there's all sorts of diseases and medications that can lead to SIBO. So another common one would be um, opiate narcotic Mm painkillers sometimes if they're just taken temporarily, like, you know, there's, let's say, wisdom teeth were taken out, or there was a surgery, and it's only a short period of time, the risk is less, but even then sometimes, and then there are people who may need to be on those long term from injuries or things they have, that's very likely. And then there's diseases like uh diabetes, uh, diabetes, very common, that leads to SIBO, very commonly leads to SIBO, hypothyroid, I mean, how common is that, right? It's, Exceedingly common. That leads to SIBO. And what these diseases are doing is they're slowing the migrating motor complex. They have a way that they do that. And there's so many other uh, diseases. The list is so huge of what can cause SIBO. And most of it is because it's slowing the migrating motor complex, that it really explains why so many people have it, really. It's just a vast list.
0: So if I were to get traveler's diarrhea, and now I know that SIBO is always something that can come from it, is there something that I could do in the interim before it even becomes SIBO that I can maybe treat the traveler's diarrhea?
1: I wish we had better information and data on this, but the the best thing I would know to do is, if you can, figure out what caused it. So that's like hard, right? Because you'd have to go to a doctor, they'd have to take a stool sample, analyze it figure out what the organism is, and then treat that organism. That is not very practical, right? (laughs) So the other thing that a lot of people do is they just travel with either herbal or pharmaceutical antibiotics, just in case. Not all traveler's diarrhea is from bacteria, but that's maybe something people do just preventatively is, is just treat. And you can also take those preventatively before ever getting it. So if you're traveling to an area where a lot of people are commonly get food poisoning, you can take herbal antibiotics with each meal. Another thing that I um, often recommend is immunoglobulin G sold as serum bovine um, IgG or colostrum Um, that has been shown in studies to help prevent infections. So you could take that with some herbal antibiotics with every meal when you're traveling or once a day, just to be sure. That's only, I would only really recommend that for people who maybe already have GI problems, um are are prone to these sorts of illnesses for just the standard person they're probably not thinking that way
0: you know could you take that could you take that protocol without the antibiotics so if you were to just take the iggs would that be enough to take uh, sort of protect you it's a
1: good protection okay. who knows if it's enough i mean i think right. that really depends on the big of the amount of load in the food mm-hmm. right you know how bad is the is the bacterial load in that or viral load in that but um, there are studies to show it prevents that. I have a personal story of it preventing it okay. myself. <laughs> Actually, I was in, in Mexico with my, um, my husband and a bunch of friends, and we all ate the same meal. They got the food poisoning, and my husband and I were taking the IgG, um, and we didn't get the food poisoning. Wow. My, my husband got, like, nothing. I got, like, one stool was a little changed. And then I was fine, but I already am affected. Uh, I didn't mention the reason I I was drawn to get into this is because I had IBS since I was five, oh. and then later realized I had SIBO. And so when I found that out, and I found all the information, started applying it to myself. It, you know, there was a a missing a, a need here, a missing bit of information. So I got all, all on fire to share it with everybody.
0: Okay, no, that makes a lot of sense. And then if you can touch upon how that autoimmune mechanism of SIBO
1: works, please. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, all of the bacteria that cause food poisoning have the same toxin that they release. And that's called cytolethal distending toxin, CDT for short, because it's big. And CDT looks very similar to a protein that lives on our small intestine nerve cells called uh-huh. vinculin. And so, autoimmunity usually occurs through a process of uh, friendly fire, so to speak, or uh, molecular mimicry is another name for it. Basically, the the, the one substance that sh- that the immune system recognizes this this toxin, it should recognize it and fight against it. It looks so similar to something in our own body that our immune system mistakes the, the thing in our own body for the problem and will attack that now.
0: Wow. And
1: so uh, that is what happens. And that's been demonstrated in studies and proven that this is the, this actually happens. And so our own immune system will, in people like this, will destroy um, these nerve cells and um, these nerve cells um, are the uh, there's, these cells are the interstitial cells of Cajal, and these cells are responsible for generating the migrating motor complex in the small intestine, and that is that essential movement that happens actually in fasting. So we have our our movement of peristalsis that helps mix, churn, and move downward food um, while it's getting absorbed. But when we're not eating, then we should always have this downward sweeping movement of the small intestine for the, for the main purpose of making sure no bacteria accumulate, there, making Mm. sure it's clean. And it's like, it's called the housekeeper wave. It's like a broom and it should always be happening when we're not eating. And so, so that would be between meals and overnight when we're sleeping. And so anyway, this uh, autoimmune process slows that, and it's been able to be demonstrated. There's a certain threshold when those cells get damaged enough, there's not enough of those cells, the movement slows down and SIBO occurs.
0: When you, drink liquids, let's say bone broth or water when you're not
1: eating foods, does it help support that sweeping process at all? Um, no, it doesn't (laughs) actually drinking water is okay. So long as you're not like drinking a whole glass all at once, because that can distend the stomach and actually signal as if there's food there just because Mm -hmm. of stomach distension. So sipping water is better. Um, And then the recommendation is to do practice meal spacing. And so this is um, no calories basically in beverages or food between meals. So no snacking between meals. And the optimal time is five hours, but that can be very hard for many people. So what I always suggest is just as long as you can. Like if you can only do three hours, three is better than not, right? Right. Four hours is better than three. So for beverages, black coffee, black tea seems to be okay, um, we think, for the migrating motor complex, but you wouldn't want any beverages with calories. So bone broth would have calories. I'm a huge bone broth fan. I wrote a whole paper on it actually, (laughs) but, um, that you, you would want that with your meal or as a meal. Okay. That makes sense.
0: And then how much does environmental toxins, including mold, for example, or the water damaged buildings that are producing mold, how much does that affect gut health
1: and SIBO specifically? Okay, so this is not my expertise, mold. It's a whole field unto itself. But from what I've looked into, it does appear that the mycotoxins that come from mold can affect nerves and damage nerves and potentially slow the migrating motor complex. We see uh, SIBO so commonly in people who have toxic mold illness Mm -hmm that I really do think there's a relationship. I don't think we have studies proving it. Okay. And I have heard some opinions. I have to say most of the opinions of of my colleagues who are involved in functional medicine are that mold causes SIBO. Mm-hmm. But there are some um, of my colleagues who don't think that, and okay. we, we don't have proof yet. It is my opinion that, that it can slow the migrating motor complex and lead to SIBO. Okay. Okay. Fair enough. And- what are some of the
0: symptoms that, I mean, obviously we talked a little bit about bloat and diarrhea, but are there other,
1: like, how do I know if I have SIBO? <laughs> the way you know <laughs> is is with a test, actually, okay. but you would suspect it because of symptoms. And those symptoms are the same symptoms of IBS. They're the same symptoms of uh, fungal overgrowth, which you mentioned, SIFO. Right. So this is why we need a test. Well, what are the symptoms? It would be abdominal bloating or distension, abdominal pain or discomfort, diarrhea, constipation, or a mixture of the two. You don't have to have all of those symptoms, but often, of course, there's the food intolerances. Uh, There's the fact that symptoms are brought on by eating. There can be acid reflux. um, There can be nausea. There can be a a feeling of the stomach feeling full and the food won't go down. There can be a lot of burping or farting. There might be no burping or farting. Uh, There can be anxiety anxiety is very common from SIBO so these are a fatigue can go with it but we're, we're mainly talking about core digestive symptoms and they come from from eating
0: hey guys just to let you know my carnivore cure book is back in stock for nine months it was out of print and used prices were up to three hundred dollars Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. And then in terms of testing, what do you
1: think is the gold standard for testing? Well, what we use clinically is the breath test, and it measures the gases we were talking about earlier. And there's different substrates and lengths of time when you do this test. So a substrate is this um, sugar, basically sugar, a form of sugar that you drink, and then you sample your breath for a certain amount of time, and then the gases are analyzed. And the one that I consider to be the gold standard is the lactulose breath Mm -hmm. test. It's not lactose, it's lactulose. And that is that is what we mostly have been using for years. There um, if you go into a gastroenterologist, they may may do a endoscopy test. Mm-hmm. And that had been considered the gold standard, but not really. <laughs> It was considered a very poor gold standard. There are issues with that test. That's where they put a tube down, sample some of the fluid in the small intestine, and then see what bacteria grow and me- measure the amount. And so anyway, there because of these two tests and how they compare to each other, there had been controversy, and it had been published that the breath tests weren't as good. But that didn't turn out to be true. We right. all suspected that the endoscopy test, which was called the gold standard, was actually not so good, and then that was proven. It was proven that the reason that they weren't lining up very well is that the gold standard wasn't so good. So mm-hmm. they they fixed the way that um, that test should be done, and now those two tests lined up perfectly, and so now the breath test has been validated, and I mention that because so many people, when they go to their doctor and say, I, "What if I maybe I have SIBO? I'd like to have a breath test," the doctors just sort of poo-poo it, <laughs> mm-hmm. and they go, "Oh no, the breath test is no good," because they're looking at the older data, and there's new data completely validating it. So I just yeah. want everyone to know the breath test is very valid, very very helpful. We need to know what gases are there, and in what amount, what severity to know what treatment to give it guides the treatment.
0: Okay, no, very fair. And then in terms of the foods, I know you said that it's not a food specific that would cause SIBO. But once we have SIBO, what are some of the foods that worsen SIBO? I know you mentioned sugars, but are maybe some example foods of the biggest culprit that would make SIBO worse?
1: Probably garlic and onions. They're oh, uh, interesting. They're some of the most difficult food for people to have, and they're ubiquitous and in everything. Right? If you eat at restaurants or eat other people's right. foods, so very, very difficult. Um, but the list is massive. Okay. Um, because it's like grains, vegetables, fruits, raw raw vegetables, salads, um, anything that is very fibrous, right. anything that's really healthy is. <laughs> <laughs> it's that's the worst part, and in fact simple sugars are actually often well tolerated. Oh, so like sugar or honey is often well tolerated while, you know, brown rice and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and salad is often poorly tolerated. It's the exact opposite of what we should be doing for health, right? Sure. The foods that are usually well tolerated are meat, mm-hmm. um, meat or protein, you know, eggs, fish, etc., And fats are often pretty, pretty well tolerated. It's the whole category of carbohydrates that we have trouble with. So fruits, vegetables, grains, um, you know, complex sweeteners, things like that. Starch is a sort of interesting exception. Sometimes starches, so white rice, white potato, white bread, um, sometimes they are well tolerated. The white bread could be gluten full or gluten free. Okay. Sometimes those are well-tolerated in somebody with SIBO because there's barely any fiber. Right, okay. Other times they are not. So it just depends on the SIBO patient. But you know, generally protein is, is the best tolerated food.
0: There was a paper done. I, I don't think it was a clinical trial, but just a case study. And it was several uh, patients and there was a clinic in Sweden, I think. It was a SIBO paper and they shared how they use some of the antibiotics. But what really moved the needle for them to start feeling better, they put them on a carnivore diet, so an all-meat diet, and some of the markers started improving in the breath test. Have you seen benefits of an elimination diet for SIBO
1: healing? What, well, what I've seen is it's it's the number one best treatment for symptom control. Like So because the symptoms are generated by the gas production, which right. is the bacteria doing fermentation of carbohydrates. And so as soon as you cut the carbohydrates down, you're not making the gases and the symptoms go away because the symptoms come from the gas. Right. So the gas, that's something we didn't mention. It's very interesting. The gas itself, like methane gas itself actually it is not inert and it actually interacts with the nervous system in the intestine and slows the motility because mm-hmm. methane is associated with constipation. So, um, and we think it's hydrogen sulfide and maybe hydrogen that actually can cause diarrhea. So as soon as you can get that gas down, which as soon as you remove the carbohydrates, there's nothing for them to ferment, the bacteria to ferment, and then the symptoms go away. Now, what we haven't been able to see, so it's interesting what you mentioned about this Swedish paper. I haven't read it. We haven't been able to get SIBO to go away um, with diet alone because So the symptoms can be gone, but then the moment a person just eats something fibrous, it's there still. It's still there. So that's when we bring in um, antimicrobial agents to bring it down. But I I wouldn't, I guess I wouldn't uh, think that that's strange that some markers would get better. Obviously the gas production will go down, right? But then if you were to take in the lactulose to do a true SIBO test as your substrate, you would probably see it's it's still there.
0: And in in all fairness, I think that uh, study did, they did use other counterpart measures. So it wasn't just diet alone. It, It was carnivore helped with, with, I think they had a group of people that used antibiotics versus maybe the herbals and then adding the carnivore diet helped a lot more than just the, I I don't know which antibiotic it is. There would be
1: no doubt. I mean, like (laughs) one day of 24 hours of removing carbohydrates being on carnivore could potentially remove all symptoms. Okay. And then incredible. So
0: then If I suffered from SIBO and I, and now I, and then I went through all the protocols, maybe I take antibiotics, maybe I take the herbals and I'm, I don't have the production of the gases. And let's say I start eating plants and I'm okay for now, just because I had SIBO, does that make it, I'm a higher risk of getting it again?
1: Yeah. Great question. So the statistics we have are that two thirds of people with SIBO go on to be chronic. Um, And only one third are not chronic, which means they're done, right? Once you get it gone, it's gone. Um, And I actually think those estimations are a little, I actually think it's higher than two thirds. The reason being is that what is the underlying cause of the SIBO? Has that been removed? So we can't get the the SIBO will just come back if the reason that it's being created is still there. And so just in the example of food poisoning, creating autoimmunity, Unfortunately, we do not have a cure for that at this time. Nobody knows how to make that autoimmune process stop. Uh, Now it's in research, it's in heavy research. And I think it's going to be figured out within probably five, six years, honestly, they're working so hard on it. So we have good hope. but and and then, there are other conditions, like or something like adhesions that could be removed, but it's complicated. um the the standard way of removing them is surgery. But surgery, I didn't mention surgery is the number one cause of adhesions, actually. Okay. So that's not a good option. So yeah. then there are some uh, physical manual therapies that have been proven to be able to dissolve adhesions but you have to travel to the people who know how to do that. It costs money. It takes time. So, you know, there's complications. Other things like um systemic sclerosis is a, a common cause of SIBO. I mean, many people with it have SIBO. It's actually a rare disease. But as an example, that is currently an incurable progressive disease. We don't know how to stop that. So that's the problem now there are causes that that can be fixed removed and then SIBO won't be there as an example Lyme disease we know Lyme disease can uh have nerve damage it could be the co-infections it could be the Lyme itself uh create the slow migrating motor complex and lead to SIBO but Lyme can be treated and chronic Lyme can be treated and gotten rid of it may take two or three years but I I know somebody who I, you know, have an example, wasn't my patient, um, colleague actually, who treated her Lyme over years, got rid of it. SIBO's gone, never came back, can eat anything.
0: So my logical brain thinks if I have SIBO and then I have it chronically, so maybe every, who knows how, how much of a time period, but if I just don't eat carbs, then even if my SIBO is there, but if I don't produce gas, I shouldn't feel symptoms. So shouldn't I, would That's the logic... Right.
1: Okay. <laughs> that, that's exciting. So you've hit on for people who have chronic SIBO and this, this takes a, a many different forms and I'll describe that in a minute, but I just okay. want to say diet is, you know, altering your diet and lowering the carbohydrates or in your case, you know, eliminating them is one of our best managements over time wow. because it just, it takes care of symptoms. And if you have chronic SIBO, that's something you're going to have to rely on more is is diet. But it can take different forms for people. So some people, they, they treat their SIBO with antimicrobials. They get it gone. They go on preventative measures, which is some kind of a reduced carbohydrate diet okay. plus prokinetics. Prokinetics are key. And then it might be a year. So they might be absolutely fine, really can eat anything. And it might be a year and then it comes back. And really those people, you know, their diet can be pretty expanded and they're not having a problem expanded in terms of carbohydrates, but then others sort of have maybe the underlying causes, the underlying causes have their own symptoms they produce. So then they need to be using diet all the time just because maybe the SIBO is gone, but they're having symptoms from the underlying cause because just, just a slow migrating motor complex in and of itself can cause problems even if you don't have bacterial overgrowth. So then diet becomes a key management strategy. They, they get rid of the SIBO as best they can. Sometimes we, we can't get it 100% gone, but it's really low. Sometimes it's 100% gone. Then they're on diet and prokinetic and they manage it that way. So then
0: how do we treat SIBO? I know we kind of touched upon it a little bit, but if I did the breath test, it shows I'm positive. Where do I go from there?
1: So we have three key antimicrobial treatments, pharmaceutical antibiotics, herbal antibiotics, and elemental diet. Okay. Most everyone knows what the pharmaceutical antibiotics are. The, and the main one we use is Rifaximin, which okay. is in the US sold as Zifaxan. It right. works for all three types of SIBO. And then we have to add in, so that's used for the hydrogen SIBO. And we have to add in all our antibiotics to do double double antibiotic therapy when we have the methane or hydrogen okay. sulfide, because those bacteria need different antibiotics. For the herbal antibiotics, it works similarly. We have a few herbs we know work on the hydrogen producing bacteria, and then we throw in other um, herbs when there's methane or hydrogen sulfide. This is one of the, the, and before I go on to elemental diet, this is one of the key um, problems we see is the practitioners, the wider spectrum of practitioners are not educated on the three types of SIBO and that you need different antibiotics or herbal antibiotics for each type. And so what happens is, people are, are maybe just, they're, they're just given the type for hydrogen when they have methane. And that is so common, or they're just given like a combo, um, you know, herbal antibiotic, everything, but the kitchen sink formula for their SIBO. And we need specific, uh, specific doses. Actually. Um, we need pretty high doses of certain herbs that at least that we know we get, you know, because in my, my team, we did before and after testing of all of our patients. So like more than a thousand patients. And we can, we saw, we need pretty high amounts of certain herbs. There are going to be some people, if you throw a big net and you just sort of throw some antibiotics, whatever, throw some herbal antibiotics, you'll catch some people with that and they'll be okay. Uh, Those are the lucky ones for everybody. (laughs) But for so many people, that's, you need to be more specific. And then for elemental diet, that is a medical food beverage. Um, it's powdered nutrients in their most elemental or broken down form, pre-digested form. And uh, that's mixed with water. And the idea there it works on a different principle from pharmaceutical herbal or herbal antibiotics. The idea is that it's absorbed so quickly into the person it feeds them, but starves the bacteria. The bacteria doesn't get a chance to eat it because there are carbohydrates in it, simple carbohydrates. And so then you do it just like antibiotics, which is two weeks, pharmaceutical, you do it for two weeks. So it's difficult because it's a liquid diet for two weeks. And then that starves the bacteria. So different mechanism of action. And I didn't mention herbal antibiotics. They take longer, as you know, from the Townsend article you were mentioning. So it takes uh, four weeks, takes twice as long as herbal antibiotics or elemental diet. So those are our our three methods. The The elemental diet, works on all types of SIBO. So you don't, there's, you you know, whichever you can buy an elemental diet from many um, companies, whichever, one you do, it should work on any of the three types.
0: So if I didn't want to take herbals or antibiotics, can't I just try the elemental diet first, see if it eradicates SIBO after two weeks, and then see if I'm better without taking any other supplements or antibiotics? Yes, absolutely. Okay.
1: And in fact, the, we like to use it for people who have very high gas. Mm-hmm. Now, gas levels and symptoms don't always correlate. They It's about a 50-50. Okay. So if somebody has really high gas, 50% of the time, we'll see their symptoms line up with that. They have terrible symptoms. Half the time, no, they might have really mild symptoms. What matters for us in terms of treatment is we have to treat the gas level and we have we can like apply math in terms of like treatment rounds on how we're treating um that gas level. When somebody has really high gas level, elemental diet is the most effective at bringing high gas level down. so it can wow. it can lower severe SIBO. Um, we've seen it lower as high as 150 parts per million. Wow. So that that's considered severe. We would consider that severe. So that's incredible. So what winds up happening is people don't like the idea of doing an elemental diet, right? And so they, um, if they have high gas, they'll say, no, I want to do the others first. And they'll go through round after round after round because we, that's classic. We have to do multiple rounds of the other ones to equal that bringing of the gas down of mm-hmm. elemental diet. So then finally, at the end, they've done all these rounds, but it's still not gone. And then, then they do the elemental diet. And it gets rid of it. And then, and then what everybody says is, I wish I had just done that the very first thing. I wish I just started with that. And so if only people could hear what you said, <laughs> and it's like, just do that. And you might have the whole thing done in two weeks if you have high, high gas level. Okay. So if you were
0: going through your own SIBO protocol first, you would first start with the elemental diet, I'm guessing.
1: Well, I think that that makes a lot of sense. Okay. I think mean, it's a per, I don't want to put any shame on anybody because <laughs> right. it's a personal choice. And People just might not be up to it in their mental or emotional wherewithal, you know right, to, right. to do it to do an elemental diet because you you have to plan ahead and be ready to not be chewing, you know, you're still getting your nutrition, but it's different, right so but yes, that is a brilliant way to do it. I do have to give a caveat, which is sure. that of these three treatment methods, it's very common to find that one or sometimes two of the methods just don't click with somebody. Mm-hmm. And we've seen it equally with all three and we never know. There's no way to know ahead, which is going to click with someone. So I'm saying that because it certainly can happen that somebody does an elemental diet and it just doesn't work. So, but that is the same with pharmaceutical antibiotics and herbal antibiotics. We okay. see it with all of them. And so if that happens, if you it's just like, it just, and what do I mean by working, by the way, is you do a, a retest after the treatment and have the gas levels come down. That's what I mean. Because you, you cannot evaluate by symptoms because it can often take multiple rounds to get the symptoms down. So you, you have to be looking by retesting with gas. That's how you can tell if it's effective. So sometimes it truly really just, a, a treatment just won't bring gas down. And so we have to move on to a different treatment and try something else and until we find what's what's working. So just the caveat, doesn't always work 100%. And by the way, no treatment works 100%. In, you know, across the board, take 50 (laughs) patients and we give it, you know, and it works like one, it works 100% in 70 of the patients, but 20, you know, 30 of them, no. Yeah. I mean,
0: that's the same thing with diets. I mean, there's magical diets, but there's always people that will not work. And so when someone's selling that it always works, it's not, it's not absolutely true. But that's right. (laughs) If I had SIBO and I, I get it, if elemental diet would be difficult for me, but now knowing that there's practitioners that don't know for certain methane or hydrogen, or sulfide that I need to take certain different, there's that risk too. Yes. So it's almost safer in a sense to as much as it's hard to do the elemental diet, that at least there's a higher chance of reducing the gas instead of yes. the other ones, because I don't know if my practitioner knows all those things. And I mean, how many people really know that, that fact about that's practitioners, right. right? So that's right. It's very interesting.
1: Yeah. That's a, that's a very good point that you've just made. The safest thing across the board would be elemental diet because it can work on all types of SIBO. So
0: then how fast after do we test? So after the two weeks of elemental, do I just go and test right after?
1: Yes. Okay. Yes. In fact, the protocol that was created by Dr. Pimentel, you, so you do it for 14 days and on day 15, you're doing the retest. The reason why that elemental diet protocol was created that way is because for the majority of people, two weeks is enough, but for some, they may need three weeks. And so he created the protocol to be uh, a way to know if you need another week, actually, Mm -hmm. so long as you can get your breath test back very quickly. Um, And that depends on the lab. You know, um, many of them will do 24 hour turnaround. Although I've just heard recently from some colleagues that they'll say that and sometimes they don't, and then you kind of just have to continue the elemental diet till you get your results right. anyway. So you could just presumptively do three weeks, but what if you didn't need it? So that's where the testing comes in, um, to make sure it's gone. And if it's, okay. if it's not gone, you can do a third week. You could, you could even do more until it's gone or if you really didn't like the elemental diet and you really want to be done with it, you can stop it and then you'd have to move on to herbal yeah, or okay. pharmaceutical. Yeah, but when we're doing herbal or pharmaceutical, we, um, I always recommend testing within two weeks of finishing mm-hmm. the treatment okay. because it's very common at two weeks to have what appears to be a relapse, but really it's better called backsliding because mm-hmm. for most people, they need multiple rounds to get the SIBO gone because it's, it's not really like your typical, just acute infection. It's right, more right. of a chronic nature. It needs longer. It, so it's not, it's still there. So until we can finish with those rounds. So that's why we want to get that test done to see what the medicine did before a person starts backsliding right, right. and move more quickly onto the next round. We don't want to wait very long because we'll lose ground. Although we do something to help with that, which is put put people on a prokinetic in between their rounds. And of course, once the SIBO is gone as well.
0: And then what, is there a certain type of prokinetic that you recommend?
1: I just yes, I mean there's pharmaceutical and there's natural ones, and I can tell you what they all are. But we just draw from this list of the the problem with. um, So I I kind of recommend all the ones that are safe. So the problem with the pharmaceutical ones is they're prokinetics. That as a category kind of has a bad reputation because there were some bad side effects and danger from some prokinetics. We don't use those prokinetics. Unfortunately, many many of the doctors who can prescribe who have prescription rights. Don't know that there are safe right. prokinetics. Mm-hmm. So they'll go, oh my God, no, you know. Right, right. But the, the safe prokinetics are prucalopride, which in the US is sold as motegrity, low dose erythromycin. So erythromycin is an antibiotic, but in low dose, it's used as a prokinetic. It's okay. a first-line treatment for gastroparesis. In um, low dose, it's safe. And then low dose naltrexone, which is okay. you can only get by compounding LDN, is what it's called for short. And the natural ones, we um, really just have sort of two variations. We have iberogast, which is a liquid, um, I think I get it wrong. Is it nine or seven herb combination? I always get that wrong. (laughs) Been around for like 45 years and been studied head to head against pharmaceutical prokinetics and shown to be as equally effective. So we know it has that function. And that you just get on like Amazon, um, iberogast. And then... Then we have ginger root and ginger root also has been shown and proven to be a prokinetic specifically for the stomach and upper intestines. And so now there are all these companies that have made ginger root containing prokinetic formulas and they'll throw all these other things in there, but the core prokinetic in there is the ginger root. So those are things like motility activator, modal pro, prokine, there's just a ton of them. (laughs) So the microbiome
0: labs, I know that they have one, I think it's I called, think... I thought they had MegaGuard that had ginger root in it. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm. Is that, is that new? I don't know about it. No, okay. I don't think it's new. Maybe it isn't ginger. I, I I know that it has licorice. I'm pretty sure it has ginger, but I do microbiome see labs. clients improve with gut function with that, especially now, when t- they can't tolerate HCL.
1: Okay. And I'll tell you something interesting about that here. I've got it in front of me. Let's just read it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, for goodness sakes. No, you know what this is? This is, well if i'm not mistaken it's it's artichoke leaf and ginger which um there's a patented prokinetic herbal formula that's called prodigest okay. and that is what is in uh, more than half of these over the counter cuz it's okay. it's a patented and so there's good studies on prodigest as a prokinetic artichoke leaf and ginger, but they have additionally added licorice. And I will say though, just as a caution, of course, you're saying you see good results with it, but licorice uh, can cause bloating and and symptoms in SIBO patients because it is a complex carbohydrate, not in everybody, but in those more challenging cases, it can be confusing because somebody can take a product like this and then... Especially like all of the things that are considered mucilaginous and coating and healing for leaky gut, um, licorice root, aloe vera, slippery elm, comfrey, marshmallow root, all of those things can be fermented by bacteria. See. And so a lot of this depends on the amount. If it's just a t- small amount in one capsule, probably no big deal. But yet I've seen patients who they drink combination herbal teas with licorice root and they bloat. So something to just keep in mind, okay. you know, if you're trying Good to manage to symptoms.
0: Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, how you, did I not know about that? Thank you for saying yeah, that. I welcome love microbiome to- labs <laughs> and I never even realized
1: they had that pro-digest.
0: So, you know, what's interesting is, um, you mentioned that if your gas goes down, but you still have symptoms, if I were to test somebody, their gas is now pretty in the pretty good range, but they have symptoms, Do would you recommend them still do like another week of elemental or some of the herbs or the antibiotics still? Or would you...
1: if If they're, okay, so if their gas is negative, uh, like they do not have SIBO, we haven't talked about interpretation, but if they they do no longer have SIBO, there's only one circumstance where I would recommend continuing treatment. And that is if they've had methane and now the methane looks to be negative, but they still have constipation because we know that there's a level and a threshold with Methane induced constipation that can't be seen on the breath test. Interesting. The, the measurement for the breath parts per million isn't fine enough. And okay. it will, it will miss some of those people. So that would be the only circumstance where you might want to continue for an additional week. Basically like it's hidden. It's, it could still, there could still be methane SIBO or emo as it's called now there, but hidden otherwise. No. And, and, and one other caveat is hydrogen sulfide is only available to be tested on one company's breath test okay. um, and that's called trio smart and so y- that's another circumstance to think about is what if there really was hydrogen sulfide there but you're only you're using um, the more predominant tests that aren't testing for that gas so those are some tricky things to to think okay. about
0: and i just wanted to add one thing to the people that are listening i'm sure they'll think well If I just eat all meat, then I'm not really eating carbohydrates. So that's similar to the elemental diet in a sense of reducing it. But um, when I did my research on just meat, there are carbohydrates in meat. And I think those are the things that I think they're called GHGs, glyco, I can't even pronounce it, but Mm -hmm. it is that there it's in the fat and the it's like in the cartilage. And that is a carbohydrate that breaks down. And I think it causes bloat. So when people eat lean meat that have SIBO, I've seen people tolerate it better but I don't know if they're getting adequate nutrition compared to if they were just doing the elemental diet. So I'm sure someone's thinking that while they're watching this and I do think an all meat diet can help, but there is some amounts of carbohydrates in meat, even though it's so small that can still possibly affect you. So just wanted that to is that such
1: a mind. great point. I, I just want to add two things to that. Yeah. Um, I've seen the same thing with okay. um, meat dishes that have a lot of cartilage. So for instance, ribs mm, right. or bacon, uh, that can really bloat people with SIBO because of the, because of the carbohydrates in you know in those di- in those meat dishes, and then second is that the other thing that an elemental diet does is it's designed to be hypoallergenic. Okay. It, it's that whole thing of how it absorbs without needing digestion, and so it actually rests digestion and is hypoallergenic, and so it's doing more than just starving the bacteria and so it has a lot of therapeutic aspects to it
0: okay and then how do we trust because i like you said i've seen so many supplement companies that say that they sell the elemental diet powder how do we know that it's the right
1: i guess the trustworthy brand right um I mean, I can mention some of the main brands. I don't, I guess there could be some I don't know, but basically what you're looking for to be an actual elemental diet is it should have amino acids, um, oil, and usually it's either glucose which is they'll use the medical term which is dextrose. Okay, right. Um or maltodextrin. It's not actually a simple sugar. It, it is longer, but it is absorbed very quickly like it'll be like tapioca maltodextrin or something. Okay. So those are the ingredients you're looking for. I just want to say there are semi-elemental diets too and those will have some small proteins peptides and those can work as well. Okay. But uh strictly it's elemental diet, so that's like physicians um uh physician's Elemental diet by integrative therapeutics okay. um there's elemental nutrition and keto elemental nutrition can't remember the brand there's Bi- bioclinic naturals has one uh, Elemental, I think it's called elemental okay. there's um absorb plus is i uh, um is that that one you add the oil to it and they have okay, lots of flavors absorb plus there, of course, there's the one that the studies was done on is Vivinex plus. Okay. And I've also used Neo Kate jr within my patients. And then, um, Dr. Michael Ruscio has some formulas. Yes. Yeah. And he has, he has a semi-elemental, which he calls an elemental diet, but it's actually semi-elemental. Oh, okay, I didn't realize that. And then the one that he has that says way free, that's the elemental diet, Okay, I but see. he has been using his semi-elemental successfully in okay. his clinic for SIBO. So I, I don't remember the exact name of his product. It's like, um, I think he just
0: calls it the elemental, um, the elemental diet, but it's under his Ruscio brand. Um, I yeah. know that they just recently came out with the keto version since so many people don't want to eat the simple sugars. Does right. that affect one way or another? The SIBO, SIBO treatment?
1: Okay. No. However, you know, in the previous, the other brand that had a keto one, there's tapioca maltodextrin in it. Oh, it's, okay, okay. it's not oh, zero gotcha. carbs. So You know, so I don't know what he's done with his, Uh, I didn't see the new one, but so yeah, there's, I think all of these are in the beginning, you know, years ago when we were, we only had Vivinex, that's what the studies were done on. Mm -hmm. We had Neocate and, oh, and I also have a homemade, I made a homemade elemental diet formula all the way back in like 2011, because they were back then, all we had was Vivinex and it was very expensive. And honestly, my patients couldn't afford it. So I spent a lot of time researching, I created this recipe. And anyone can access that for free on my website, seboilinfo.com. Anyway, so that's all we had. And so that's all we used. And then we were all nervous when these new formulas, we wanted these formulas. I even consulted with one of them asking them, please make a a nicer formula. And then when they came out, we were worried, do they really work? But it's been so many years now since all of these companies have come out with these formulas. And yes, they all work. So I mean, an elemental diet is pretty easy to create. And if, so long as it has those guidelines, it should work. So it just sounds so promising to just take this elemental
0: diet drink for two weeks, and then you should be pretty much okay with SIBO. But I mean, there are forums and groups of people that are chronic SIBO sufferers, like what is going on when they're following the gold standard treatment, and they're still not getting better, or or at least they're chronically dealing with SIBO?
1: Well, the first thing is that they have an underlying cause that is continuing to cause it that we can't get rid of, or maybe they don't know what it is, right? That's the first thing. Second thing is what if the elemental diet didn't bring their gas down? So, Mm -hmm. so many people, if they don't have a real good SIBO specialist they're working with, doctors won't retest. So they have symptoms, but they don't know, like, did, what did that treatment do? If you're really struggling, if you have a chronic issue, we need testing. Like, you know, but like as a SIBO specialist, by the time someone came to me, there was no argument about testing. They wanted all, everybody wanted all right. the testing they could get because they're sick of it. They want this done right, you know? So that's how you do it right. Don't be guessing. Don't guess. What are your, What are your gas levels? What did that treatment do? Quick follow-up, right? So all of these things. So we would have to first get all of that out of the way. Do we know? And are we testing hydrogen sulfide? Do we have all of that handled? If all of that is handled... Then that's when we think about things like mold. Um, right. And mold, I think, is probably one of the most common. I'd say it's like the number one reason why you can't make headway on treating someone SIBO. So you're doing appropriate treatments for the type of gas that work on most everyone else, and they're, they're really not working. They're not right, bringing right. the gas down. Right. It's often mold, and it's usually someone is living in a moldy environment, yes. and we're just not going to get anywhere we're not going to get anywhere. It's pointless. I mean, by anywhere, there might be one to two weeks of some symptom reduction. That's it. You know, right. five days, it, they've got to get out of the moldy environment. So, you know, like, I mean, I've had patients like that, like, and then you you find out that there's visible mold on all the walls. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's like, yeah, oh my yeah. God, you know, not just like the hidden behind one dot behind, you know, so there's that. Another thing that, that that seems to be able to halt progress are parasites. Okay. And that can coexist at the same time. Um, it's very confusing. We have, we have so many conditions that have the same symptoms of, as SIBO. Right. Right. So you can have a positive SIBO test and not know you also have fungal overgrowth and parasites and whatever else, you know. So that's an odd one I fully don't don't fully understand, but sometimes you need to treat the parasites before you can make headway. And sometimes treating parasites is not just a one time thing. You know, right. we hear from all our functional medicine colleagues who specialize in that, right? There's layers, and it's like you treat one, and then up comes from a yes. deeper layer of the intestinal lining. And so you got to test again and treat again. So there's that. Those are some things I think about, and also um, histamine sensitivity or MCAS. Uh, that also, which goes in hand with mold. I don't have all the answers here. I just can tell you what we see clinically. I wonder if there's some kind of um, like there would be with the other two ongoing inflammation. Obviously, you know histamines right. inflammatory that somehow prevents making progress. So, so sometimes we need to to bring the histamine symptomatically, the histamine intolerance down also before we can make headway. So those are some things to think about. And, and also, did I mention that not everybody responds to elemental diet? So are they they testing? Did they find out if it was working? You know, just as an aside, I'd like to mention, because we're talking a lot about elemental diet, a a colleague of mine is really a specialist in putting people through the elemental diet. And I just had her come and do some lectures for me. And, um, you know, I've put a lot of people through elemental diet. She's put more <laughs> Okay. and she's developed actually a, like a short little course for, oh. um, I just thought I might mention it, it might be good. Sure, sure. I can send you the information because it actually brings people all the way through completely organizing how to prepare, oh, okay. how to, how, choosing your shake, how to calculate your calories you need, which one should you use and, um, tra- a transition diet off. Okay. So, um, I'll send you the resource.
0: Okay. No. And do you, do you want to just mention the name in case people don't? I. Oh, yes. It's comments. called
1: the Elemental Elemental Diet Success Plan, and it's okay. by Dr. Roy and Debbie Steinbach.
0: Okay. So I'll put it in the show notes. But just in case someone is listening to this on podcast or something, yeah, we
1: uh, we just have never had any yeah. any resource like this. That and makes it, sense. It, it, I'm just excited about it because it's a complicated thing to sometimes go through. There, sometimes support is needed. So, there it is. I, I wanted to mention something about, um, so I do a lot of mold testing and,
0: uh, we, I do it more from the perspective of chronic inflammation. We do some blood work on it. I don't use just the urine mycotoxin test, but I have found that every single person so far that I've tested for ulcerative colitis is actually suffering from mold illness. Wow. Yeah. So, so now I have a much wider audience of SIBO sufferers, and not everyone has tested. So that's why I can't say that hundred percent but I've seen it with UC. So it's pretty intense. And I think one marker that I know of in terms of the whole mold illness, there's a hormone called the melanocyte stimulating hormone. And that marker with that hormone, when it reduces, which is mostly in the brain, it will reduce your ability to have good gut function. So it causes more of the leaky gut, like the actual lining. And then that's what can exacerbate the gut function because of mold illness. So I'm sure there's other factors, but that is one of the biggest ones. Okay. I'm writing that down.
1: Yeah. Because yeah. I'm not a mold expert. I have okay. I've listened to like maybe three <laughs> or four
0: lectures on it.
1: I'll I'll, give, if, you a, I'll give you a I'll give you a
0: handout <laughs> or like informational on it. But it's MSH or melanocyte stimulating hormone. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Like, you know,
1: if you don't use it or lose it, right? You know, I've listened to these lectures, I have a clue. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which you gotta you've gotta be practicing to really But what what's interesting is um even if you
0: treat mold itself, if you don't work on the gut, it doesn't fully heal too. So it's just this like fine dance, just like you mentioned with parasites and with SIBO, I think there's also this balance of, if you do have mold illness and you are suffering from either UC or SIBO, you can't just ignore one or the other. It almost has to be worked together in tandem to get the most benefit. So mm-hmm. it, it's, it is a tricky balance, but I think the marrying of both works really well.
1: I've also seen that with Lyme. I used to okay. have a yes, lot yes, of Lyme, Lyme, too. Lyme patients mm-hmm. where we couldn't get anywhere with their SIBO. Right. Um, particularly when they were using the medicines to treat Lyme at the same time. And there was just, I was, I never figured out the exact dance that was needed, uh, but I think probably the Lyme needed to be handled before we could really get the SIBO. Under control. So
0: I'm not a Lyme expert. I could give you the total basics that I understand if it's a new infection um, and Lyme is just, you have the bullseye or you, you just all of a sudden are really unwell after a hiking trip. Uh, you probably want to go through the antibiotic rounds. I think it's, I I forget if it's six weeks, eight weeks, right? Yes. And then, um, but if it's chronic Lyme, so now it's sort of in your cells now and it's no longer that you're taking antibiotics. Actually, I've heard that it could be that chronic inflammatory response syndrome from more mold illness that's caused. So basically you did the die off, but the die off is not able to be removed in the system on its own. And so you need like a special protocol slash binder to help reduce some of that Lyme infection, yeah. but again, it's, it will affect that. It goes back to that. It will affect the melanocyte stimulating hormone. Very interesting. I know it's, 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 it's a whole thing, but um, yeah, I think uh, I, I have seen so many clients that suffer from both gut issues as well as mold illness. So it, it is fascinating, but I, I think you have to treat both at the end of the day. So yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, this has been wonderful. I generally don't recommend antibiotics and actually I, I guess I do have a question about that. Um, Do you, see any risks with taking the antibiotics? It sounds like even prophylactically, you recommend that when you go overseas or go to places that may have the risk of getting that traveler's diarrhea, are there any risks with overtaking the antibiotics or a lot of the people in the community are, are hesitant about taking too many antibiotics?
1: Yeah, I actually haven't recommended um, prophylactic okay. pharmaceutical antibiotics. I usually recommend the herbals. Oh, okay, okay. But there's a key thing here, which is that rifaximin is not a negative antibiotic. It's okay. it's actually, it has so many positive properties. It's outrageous and it's called a eubiotic. It's called a eubiotic with antibiotic properties. So just as an example, it's anti-inflammatory. It doesn't lead to yeast overgrowth. It okay. increases bifidus and lactobacillus in the intestine intestines. Um, it's intensely anti-inflammatory. Okay, There's no antibiotic resistance to it. Oh, okay. And I could go on and on <laughs> and on. I mean, the studies are, you sort of, it's like, it's just too good to be true. Like basically I'm sure over time, something bad will happen with okay. it. But what I mean is like antibiotic resistance sure. will probably develop, but currently it's, Incredible. So in fact, my nat I'm a naturopathic physician, my naturopathic colleagues say we shouldn't even be calling it an antibiotic because it gives it the whole wrong impression. It doesn't right. fit in that category. So there really is no concern. And in fact, I mean in terms of like the microbiome, it actually helps the microbiome. Okay, interesting. And in fact, um, Dr. Pimentel, who's the key key lead researcher on all of this, has shown that after rifaximin, after you get the SIBO gone the microbiome. So he's doing a lot of small intestine microbiome studies. There really have never been that okay. all the microbiome studies have been on the large intestine and, and he has right. a whole, um, massive program underway called a mass program. That's pumping out all these, he's doing all the work on the small okay. intestine okay. microbiome. And he's been able to show that the nor that the small intestine microbiome returns to normal after refaxment, wow. no, no probiotics, nothing else. Like basically Excellent. get that SIBO gone and the garden grows again. Like he yeah. always refers to it as there's a few weeds overtaking the garden in SIBO, kill those weeds. And then the garden can be flourishing and happy again. So, so rifaximin is a special case or zifaxan as it's called in the U S right. um, the brand name. So that I don't, I'm not concerned about that. The, the okay. only real risks um, that I have seen published are if it's taken like at high dose every day for six months, okay. but we're not doing that. We're right. using it for two weeks and then, you know, may, and it's safe up to seven repeat rounds, but you're, that's not somebody on it constantly. You sure, know? sure. And the, the issue there was liver, uh, liver enzyme, okay. elevation, which is what happens if you, medicine is it's too right. much. Yes. So, um, but the um, the other antibiotics would be we used to be all the time. We would use neomycin right. and metronidazole. Neomycin is stopped, been, stopped being made by the manufacturers. So we mm. can't get it right now. So, therefore, I guess no point to discuss it. <laughs> metronidazole is pretty nasty, right? Okay. I mean, you know, people. The interesting thing is people have terrible uh, reactions. They they write about. You go online. It yes. looks like you never ever want to take that medicine. I just don't see what, what I think it could be. No, I just don't see those terrible reactions. I've seen side effects. Of course, I've seen side effect reactions from everything I've ever given. I can't say that I've seen any worse side effects from anything that I've given herbal versus pharmaceutical people just, they have reactions. Right. But so I'm just talking about like, they take it, they have a reaction, they stop it. They're fine. Right. But, um, I just think it could be that metronidazole is a very appropriate medicine for this condition. And we use it with a methane type.
0: Okay.
1: Such that it doesn't seem to give people the terrible reactions. It's, it's maybe it's doing the kind of thing refaxman is where it's now it's allowing the microbiome to come back. I don't know, because I mean, you read about it, it looks awful, but anyway, I don't see those, those terrible, terrible things except the occasional side effects. Um, and then one other one would be um, which is sold as linea, a little hard to come by. Sometimes you have to get it compounded okay. or from overseas. That one is very safe and non-toxic. So I'm not that concerned about that either. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Um, I know you had
0: a, I think it was like a practitioner mastermind. So I know that there, I hope that a portion of the people watching this are people that are suffering from SIBO and want help. But I know that there's also a subset of people that are listening because they're practitioners and they're trying to help their SIBO
1: cases. I think you have a course. Um, I, have, if, yeah, I have courses for both patients okay, okay. and practitioners. And the, the patient one helps people treat themselves as well as work with whomever they're working with. Like it okay. just gives them knowledge so they know how to interface with their practitioner better. And then I have, I have a full training for practitioners, like full training. It's 22 hours. So it'll, it'll help you with every possible scenario. Okay and then can they find that at your website? Yes, it's okay. on the home both of those are on the home page and that's SIBOinfo.com. Lots of it's a free educational website okay. so lots okay. of And I will link to all of that. Do you
0: I mean it sounds like if you're saying that a person is if you if they're able to take your training and they learn a lot about SIBO, could people possibly tr- treat this on their own? So if let's say they're able yeah. to get the uh, the the gas test the breath
1: test. Yes, there are ways to get the test. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, okay. As a patient. Absolutely. And and um, practitioners without prescribing rights, because in the US, lactulose is a prescription item. Oh, very okay. I didn't realize that. Okay. Very frustrating. Uh, I don't agree with that. But there are absolutely ways um, practitioners without prescription rights and patients can order the test yes. directly. Okay. Um, and I can just tell you, you can get that through direct labs, you can get it through True Health mm-hmm. Labs and through TrioSmart. TrioSmart, they all have basically either on-staff physicians that will sort of write the order for you, or they have like a, I think Trio Smart uses like a, I don't know, some group like medical okay. calls. You you pay like a small fee right? Right. And they basically give you the prescription. So, so there's ways to do it. And yes, a, a patient can treat themselves, particularly with the herbals or the elemental diet. And that's sort of part why I wanted to make the course mm-hmm. because I myself was, b- before I became a doctor, I was a suffering SIBO patient. And people should be empowered to help themselves. You you shouldn't only just have to go through a practitioner who may not, you know, have enough knowledge depending upon what area (laughs) of the country you're in. And so this gives the knowledge, but you can also work with somebody too, you know, to get, to get prescriptions. Sometimes you need prescriptions, but yes, it can be handled by yourself and it gives you the knowledge to do it. I love that. I love that. So I will absolutely recommend people
0: to your website. I'll put it in the show notes, but thank you so much for all the knowledge and wisdom and just the education you've put out about SIBO. Like you are my go-to person for SIBO. And so anybody that ever asks about SIBO to me, I always recommend you. So thank you so much. Um, Where can people, I know we just brought up your website, but do you work with um, actual patients still? And then where can people find you? Are you on social media Do you have any? No, it's crazy. crazy. I'm not on social media. (laughs) I know it's
1: crazy, but that would be too distracting and I have too much work to do. (laughs) And um, I'm not seeing patients. I'm just focusing on education, although I have two wonderful covering doctors. So mostly you could just um, sign up for my newsletter at my website because anything new that comes out, I put it there and I give free classes and things like that.
0: Yes. 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 I've seen many of your webinars. So thank you. This has been wonderful. I, again, thank you so much for all that you've done. And literally I write my protocol For SIBO, if that's the step that we need to go when we do the breath test based on your work and research. So, thank you so much for all the people that you are supporting that have had SIBO illness and just bringing exposure to it.
1: Well, thank you for thanking me. (laughs) Uh, You're so welcome. And thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed
0: this conversation. I had a lovely time chatting with Dr. Seabaker. I've been a full fan of hers for the longest time. So, it's been an honor. If you are suffering from SIBO, Carnivore may not always be the first defense diet. I know that's such a difficult thing to hear, but maybe you start carnivore and you eat lean meats, but if it's not helping you enough, you may want to just try an elemental diet for about two weeks. You can try to do the protocol on your own as Dr. Becker gives you all the empowerment to do so, which I love about her, or you can work with a SIBO specialist. Regardless, if carnivore is not moving the needle enough, you may also want to consider SIRS, you may also want to consider mold or lime, or you may want to try the elemental diet. The point is that if you're not healing enough, at a certain point, if you are honest that you've been clean with the diet, it's been like three to six months of eating maybe all meat, and you're not healing enough, especially with the gut, it's time to dig more. And I just hope that these conversations provide you another lever to get to root cause healing. Okay, guys, make sure to eat a lot of meat and take care of your bodies because it is the only place you have to live. I will talk to you later. Bye guys. Thanks for listening to the nutrition with Judy podcast.